My name is Terence Gerritman, and I'm the moderator of Longitarians.com and the podcast host for Longitarians. Longitarians is a concept that looks to examine the science, the research, lived experience, and the thinking behind the true potential for human health span and longevity. In the podcast series, we look to speak to the best experts and storytellers around the concept of extending human health span beyond the current mortality and retirement plateaus that we have set for ourselves through lifestyle diseases and the way we live our lives. If you're on YouTube, please subscribe to the channel. And if you're on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please rate us. Always consult your physician before beginning any exercise or nutrition program. This general information is not intended to diagnose any medical condition or to replace your healthcare professional. Consult with your healthcare professional to design an appropriate exercise or nutrition program. We're delighted to have Dr. Akil Teha uh, at our Longitarians podcast today. Dr. Teha is a practicing medical doctor, an author, an eternal optimist, adventurer, and a strong advocate for a whole food plant-based vegan lifestyle. He's a septuagenarian who has educated thousands to understand a way out of pain of chronic illnesses and diseases. He believes that what you eat is the most important pillar of the six pillars of lifestyle medicine, which along with his incredible story, he often shares. Welcome, Dr. Teha. And, and, I, and you told me to call you Akhil, so I'll try and call you Akhil. Um, I'd love to hear about your life experience uh, from India to the US and what's brought you to where you are today. Uh, first of all, thank you, um, Terence, for that really kind introduction. I appreciate that very much. And uh, to start off, let me just tell you that I came to America in my 40s rather late. So I had a lot of catching up to do. And so I worked long hours, paying very little attention to my health, family, and friends. See, for most part of my adult life in America, I was a lover of good, unhealthy food. Not good in that sense, but unhealthy food without worrying about the unhealthy consequences like heart disease. Like many, even in Australia or here, you believe that heart disease won't happen to you. But it did at a pretty young age of 56. And when I say I was, uh, I indulged in any foods that I wanted. I mean, you can talk about uh, carry out Chinese or Japanese or Indian or you name it, and I've eaten it. I think for a long period of time, people called me a seafood eater, S-E-E. I ate everything at sight. And then when I was not working long hours and not eating what was in front of me, I was a complete couch potato. So the fact was, again, the only muscles I exercised were my eye muscles looking at joggers running the park or my hand muscles changing the channels on the TV. Trust me, my best companion was my couch. 
And so, on top of it, and I'm not ashamed to say that, I had a type A personality. I needed everything under my control. It was either my way or the highway. So, and then, and then you have a bad genetic history. My mother, my sister both died at a young age of 69. My one brother died at the age of 52. My older brother now who has got pulmonary fibrosis is about a year older than I am. And here I am. So when all the, and, and then the stress level, when you go to a foreign country and you want to make it and you got late in life, you want to make it. So the point is in doing that, all these things combined so that heart disease came knocking at a very young age of 56. Now here is a message I would like people to understand. Heart disease is a leading cause of death in the US, in India, and worldwide for both men and women for 103 years in a row. And what is the leading cause of heart disease is what we put in our mouth. So to me, that is an extremely important thing. Now people can become vegan or plant-based food for several reasons. My wife and daughter became plant-based foods, vegans at 25, 30 years back because they believed in animal rights, the cruelty to animals. I did not. I did it for health reasons, number two. And number three, our big proponents like you believe in the climatic change. And I've read a few things about it. Phenomenal. So these are the three things, but the goal is the same prevent heart disease, to prevent health disease, to see that our pollution level, the global warming, all that, and the animal cruelty. So to me, I believe what uh, Pythagoras, I believe, was a guy who said that as long as you kill one another, there will not be any, as long as you kill animals for your food, there will not be any peace on earth. That yeah. was Pythagoras. I haven't heard that, but that's a powerful saying. And I, I believe that. I think if you can kill anything that's sentient, then there's going to be continued killings around the world. True, true. And then Maimonides said that, hey, wait a minute. If no disease that can be treated by food should be treated by any other means. And so we have not done that. So when heart disease came knocking at my door, and here to just digress a little bit, we South Asians, and when, when I say South Asians, I mean people from India, Pakistan, Nepal, Sri Lanka, uh, as far as Bhutan and Maldives. We are 25% of the world's population, but we carry 60% of the world's heart disease. And not only that, over here, we are four times more likely to get heart disease than our Asian counterparts, meaning the Japanese or the Koreans or the Chinese. And we get heart disease at a younger age. 25% of them get it, a heart attack before the age of 40 and 50% before the age of 55. 
And therefore, the American Heart Association says that if you are of South Asian descent, it becomes a separate risk factor. It is that important. Wow. Now, there are a few studies done over here, Masala study and all that, but we don't have the funds because we are a small community. But we are working on it. We don't have all the answers, but we'll get into it as we go along. So coming back to my story, I had blockages 98 to 99% of two of my arteries. And the blockages were so bad that the plaques were so thick that they had to use a diamond tip drill to shave off the plaques. And in, in the process, I had a cardiac arrest. My heart stopped. And they had to shock me to get my heart beating again. Imagine my horror the next morning when I saw paddle burns and loss of hair on my chest. So the point I'm, I'm making over here is that this is a time everybody, the listeners, would wonder, hey, now is the time Dr. Teher must have changed his life. No. In spite of having coronary artery disease, my previous lifestyle choices prevailed as I laughed at the medical condition. And so, well, there were battling, tormenting thoughts in my mind, but I sort of did not change. So here is my next comment of adversity can be your best friend or your worst enemy. Right now, adversity, as I'm talking to you about my story, became my worst enemy because I didn't do anything about it. So here comes the question of I am now in a state of absolute, um, I was, I was, lonely, I was sad, I was having sobbing, uncontrollable sobbing. I would throw things for no rhyme or reason, using anger as a cover-up to the deep despair I felt. I Nights were terrible, horrible dreams, night sweats, and the chronic fatigue as a result. And all these dark energies and thoughts and behaviors led to more physical problems. So now I had the pneumonia and the bronchitis visit me every year, sinus infections, and then came the dreaded because of my diet had no fiber over a period of so many years. My, I had the infamous diverticulitis with perforations. There are holes in the colon, in the large intestine. And what happened was twice I was admitted with these holes. Now picture this. Ask your listeners to just picture this. I, my friend, the surgeon, is standing over me in the operating room and telling me, Akhil, if I do not operate on you right now, you may not survive. So that... And then you have this enlarged prostate. And then you have the acute retention of urine. And then you're admitted for bleeding. And they put 
rightfully so, put large catheters to take those large clots out. It's like somebody piercing an iron rod in your genitals, genitals. And I forgot to tell you one thing, that when they put the stents in me, the guy who did the stents was phenomenal, superb cardiologist. He saved my life. Yeah. But guess what? One year after that, he died of a massive heart attack, South Asian, on, while working on his treadmill. So just picking on, up on that point, uh, Akhil, um, talk to me about what you observe in the medical profession and, and in the medical schools. Now, if you look back in history, there's a lot of connection between the, the pharm pharmaceutical industry and how prevention was really taken out of the curriculum in, in medical schools. Um, that across the world, uh, you know, when you talk to doctors, there's very little um, sort of intake in terms of nutrition studies and, and how to prevent things. And, and then you see doctors, as you say, even your cardiologist and, and a lot of doctors who, uh, you know, and, and to your lived experience, uh, are, are not really connecting what you're doing in your lifestyle and, and the food that you eat to your health. How are you trying to change that or, or is there is there some change in the wind in terms of educating the profession particularly the general practitioners uh, in terms of how to work with their patients on uh, improving their lifestyles okay let me start by saying that when i was a medical student uh, way back when uh, there was zero hours of nutrition talk period my son, who is a physician also in Atlanta, Georgia, he had 25 hours. So can you imagine, he's now in his 40s, and only 25 hours. Things are improving, but we did not know. So what was again a problem was insurance companies. See, they work hand in hand. Now, if you're not going to, if I'm going to spend a half an hour telling you about how not to get diabetes. But I'm getting more from the insurance companies after you get diabetes and I put you on medications. Then doctors are inclined to do what is called as treat the consequence of the disease and not treat the cause of the disease or prevent the cause. So now things are changing. Dr. Neil Bernard, uh, Dr. Uh, Collins, uh, T. Collins, uh, your Dr. Michael Greger, all these people are really doing a phenomenal job. And the American College of Lifestyle Medicine is doing a superb job in this. So we are going to be there. We are going to get there, but it is going to take time. So right now, my point is that we were always sort of doing a band-aid treatment, even though a lot of people are still doing it. It's like, a, it's like an overflowing sink. When you're just going on mopping the floor, mopping the floor, all you have to turn is the faucet off, which we did not do. And, and a very simple thing is that now we are, of course, uh, consequence of the disease is there. There is a place for medic medicine that way too. I mean, I do not want you to, a person to get a heart attack or an acute abdominal pain and say, take a, a stick of carrot. You know what I'm saying? 
I don't want you to get a heart disease and take a sick care. Of course, run to the emergency. But the point is that all the chronic diseases, namely blood pressure, diabetes, heart disease, stroke, uh, obesity, certain cancers, is a man-made. You can prevent it. You don't need to, and you are saving billions of dollars in doing that. So I am at a later stage that I changed, but I am doing everything I can within my means. Not that I don't have skeletons in my closet, in my closet. I do. But this is where if I'm going to preach something, I will practice it. Otherwise, I will say no. So for that reason, I'm going a little off track now, is that people ask me, do you drink? Yes, I drink. But I don't, I mean, socially drink. But if you ask me now, the Harvard study six months back said, drink medically does not do any good for anybody. So if you're drinking socially for feeling or getting, that's a different point. But I am honest to the point that, hey, I am doing this. Even though the lifestyle, the six pillars have now just come out. The last one is alcohol is, I would not advocate al alcohol to anybody. Yeah. So to, to make a long story short, yes, we have not been taught the reimbursements were different and now we are changing. So Akhil, in terms of, um, you know, the foundations of lifestyle medicine, which you talk about in your book, and, and uh, we're going to put some links to where to get the book um, and, and to your social media um, uh, links uh, on, on our YouTube. Um, but if, if you could sort of talk about the foundational pillars that you're now across in terms of sleep, meditation, exercise, um, whole food, plant-based lifestyle, um, what are the sort of six areas that you promote? And, and let me sort of take it further. If you look at the global population and if you had a magic wand, what, what would you do um, for the whole world that will change, you know, in, in the way that you would love, love to see? Because I still, I still, you mentioned some names in terms of doctors who are talking about this area, but it's, it's a very small cohort of experts compared to the rest of the world. How would you wave your magic wand um, to change how people live their lives? You see, here the thing is, Terence, I wear three different hats. I wear, I wear the hat of a research and physician treating the cause and prevention of chronic diseases rather than treating it after it has happened, the consequence. My number two hat is, which very few people amongst the medical doctors we are talking about wear, is that I'm a heart disease patient too, survivor. So I've been in the shoes of heart disease patients, so I know exactly what they're going through and what they need. And third, again, very few of the physicians are great. They're my colleagues, they do a wonderful job, but then I am an endurance athlete. So that three hats gives me an opportunity of saying, why? What can happen if you change? And so what happened was that I, when I promised the ICU nurses that I was going to do a half marathon, I did the half marathon in eight months after my open heart surgery. But, but I still would get my diverticulitis 
some sort of infections here and there. I was wondering why, what was I doing? Was I doing something wrong? And then I started reading all these people and got, and the more I read, the more I knew that there was something in here. And so I followed it to the T to figure out. And the moment I started on a whole food plant-based diet, wow, the perforations, the diverticulitis, the sinus infections, I'm not saying that Food is the only thing, but it's the most powerful thing. So if that food can change your life to an extent that all these things are not now anywhere close to me, why would people not? All I tell my patients is give up one thing and see if you feel better or not, two or three. Even in the book, I'm going to openly tell you right now, Anybody who buys my book does not gain something out of it. Call Terence and I will refund your money back. So that is a powerful statement I'm making that no, there is definitely benefit in this. So my point is that we are all thinking about it, but my uh, things like my illnesses have all gone. Number two, my physical, so when we come across that, my health has become better, but my performance time, my preparation time, my recovery time in my sports has decreased tremendously. So when I did a hundred kilometer bike ride, I was still not completely a vegan. And it, I mean, I was completely finished, but when I did a hundred mile bike ride, I was a complete plant-based. And I had so much energy that when I went from there with my trainer, we had to drive back to my small town, which is a six hour drive. So we did, and those were gale force winds that day for some reason, it was extremely cold. So it took us eight and a half hours to do the hundred miles. And they had to stop at about 25 kilometers because a cyclist fell off and all that. So that was bad. But I, we did that on, my, on the way I get a call from my clinic that there's nobody to cover tomorrow. Can you come in? So here I am doing eight and a half hours, six hours drive. Next day, I'm getting to the clinic at eight o'clock and doing a 10 hour shift like nothing has happened. So that's number two, the physical aspect of it. And the third thing, when I started doing this vegan for health reasons, my eyes opened up to what is happening to the global warming. What is happening when you're deforesting and your carbon dioxide and getting the sunlight and glaciers uh, melting and seawaters rising and uh, the cruelty to animals. So I became more empathic, more mellowed down my type A personality. So if you have all these advantages, I would be a fool not to follow. And I ask people, do it. If you say, oh my God, where am I going to get the protein? I got all my proteins. If you are going to say, where are you going to get your calcium? Anyway, the dairy industry is asking you to take too, many, too much calcium. You don't require 1,200. You require 600. And your vitamin D is more important to absorb whatever calcium you're taking from your vegetables and other things, which is enough. Green leafy vegetables. You don't need it. 
So that's my point, that if I have benefited so much wearing the three hats and then doing things, then I would want everybody to do. I'm not asking people to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. I'm not asking them to run marathons. But yes, the next important thing is your exercise. But diet is more important than exercise. Studies have been done. And okay, so, so reading your book and, and you've made these points through through talking through them, but you've made you prioritized your sleep, um, you've prioritized your me meditation and yoga, um, and and so calming your mind and and uh, resting, and allowing yourselves to rejuvenate, the plant based lifestyle, which you then talk about oils and sugars and eliminating those, uh, and and then you go on to um, the exercise and being mobile. You know, not necessarily running marathons, but ensuring that you're getting five days of exercise um, per day. Uh, have you looked at fasting at all, intermittent fasting? And do you practice any fasting? I generally do intermittent fasting because I eat when before the sun sets. So therefore, from that 5.30 onwards, my first listing is at about eight, nine o'clock in the morning. So there goes your 15, 16, 17 hours of the intermittent fasting. I'm not asking everybody to do this, but intermittent fasting does help. But here is, a, I was born a Muslim, okay? There was fasting for a month in my listing. I could not do it. I cannot fast. If you tell me to fast, I would cheat. I can't remain hungry. Now, it's okay that I sleep off and I get up in the morning. That's different. But I cannot remain hungry. So I, I, I get into kind of a dizzy, this thing, and I all those things. So I cannot fast. But if somebody can do an intermittent fasting at least once or twice or once a week or once in two weeks, excellent. There are tremendous benefits to it. But I do it naturally. I don't say I'm going to do this day intermittent fasting. The moment I say I'm doing fasting, the word maybe psychological, I'm turned off because my body does not accept it. Yeah. So that is my problem. But intermittent fasting does have its way. And another thing I'll tell you about that next point, exercise. If you want to walk in the park and feel good with endorphins, by all means do it. But if you're doing it for your cardio, no. You have to reach 70% of your maximum heart rate. And your maximum heart rate is calculated by 220 minus your age. So if you, that is your maximum, 70%. So if you take me, for example, I'm 75. So if you uh, do 220 minus 75, it'll be roughly, I'm saying about 146, 150 or whatever. And 70% of that will be about 104, 105. Yeah. If I don't reach this, I'm not doing cardio. Plus, as you exercise, your heart rate will go down. Once your heart rate goes down, that means the 
heart has to work less and more oxygen can be pulled to the cells from the blood with less work of the heart. Yeah. But older people like me who are bedridden or this and that, they can start exercising when they get up in the morning in the bed. You can stretch your, uh, your uh, soleus muscle, your calf muscles. You can do your ankle twist. You can do a lot of things in bed. Hmm. Hip uh, abductions and abductions, all these things should be done in bed. And another place that one can do wonderful exercise because you're getting the warm water flowing on you is in the cold, is in the bathroom, in the shower, where you can do the stretching. Because what happens that I've noticed with South Asians, no, with even the Americans, everybody, is that men tend to get more stiff as they get older. Women don't get that stiff. So we have to stretch more and balance more which I am extremely stiff, but I've got a lot better after doing my yoga. So that is another point that I would like to make regarding exercise, that you do it for different reasons, but if you do cardio, you must reach that. Point of sleep that you brought about. See, here they say six to nine hours is required. I don't believe that. I believe in restorative sleep. Because myself or you or anybody else must have noticed, sometimes I get five hours of sleep and I am so ready to go. And sometimes I'm eight hours, nine hours I'm sleeping and I am so tired that I don't feel like getting up. So the whole point is that you have the non-rapid eye movement sleep and the rapid eye movement sleep. It's a rapid eye movement sleep that causes you uh, dreams and uh, you, you're active in that. Your non-REM sleep, rapid eye, non-rapid eye movement should be more. Quite. So to me, restorative sleep is much more important than just sleeping nine hours or 10 hours or eight hours. I was going to explore one last point with you, Akhil, in terms of how all of us, particularly those in Western countries, have to fight a range of things. So if we look at um, the evolutionary background, when food is plentiful, um, your evolution suggests that you consume the food because you, you get ready for hard times. Then you've got the cultural aspects, particularly South Asians, where um, you, know, you go visiting and the whole plan is to try and feed you and feed you and feed you. Uh, and then you've got your friends and family who if they don't come along with you and you're plant-based, um, you know, socially, it's awkward. Um, and, and then you've got stress where people are stressed out all day. They come home and there's comfort eating in order to relax themselves, uh, putting a, a, a movie on, a Bollywood film on and uh, having bade, um or, or, or a very heavy oily meal. So these are the sort of, I guess, lifestyle issues that confronts uh, someone who's moved to a Western country in particular, or someone who is already in a Western country, and even kids, you know, we're talking about kids now having diabetes and so on much earlier in their lives, uh, and obesity crisis. So these are the tensions that humans are now faced with. How do you sort of guide your friends, family, patients um, through working through those issues? 
See, first of all, uh, Terence, I would like people to go to a doctor who understands, I'm talking about uh, South Asians, who understands South Asians. As I said, we are a separate risk factor. So why? If you go to India, have you been to India? I haven't. Have you been no. to India? No, I haven't. Okay. If you've been to any South Asian country, you will find that people don't look obese in the Western term of obesity. They're pretty much looking good. But do they carry fat? Yes, in their abdomens. So that is visceral obesity. That is a fat that is around the heart, in the liver, in the muscles. So that was a masala study which was done in America, which found, and they took some people and they found out that they were not obese as a BMI stated of the Western thing. So take for me, for me, for example, when I got my this thing at 56, my BMI was 21. Mm. It was perfect. I could have fallen through the cracks. But did, was I carrying fat? Sure. Like, I don't know your kangaroos, you know, that kind of uh, pouch. I had a pouch. Yeah. So that means I was carrying fat. Now, having said that, we are so many things that we South Asians have. We have, first of all, this carrying of the fat, which is the visceral obesity. Number two, we have smaller coronaries compared to the Westerners. We got larger lesions. We got multiple vessel disease. We don't know why. We're working on that. And then you come across insulin resistance. What is insulin? That means if your blood is sugar, insulin takes that sugar into the cell to be used as energy. But as I said before, if your cells are filled with fat, full of fat, then it comes back into the blood. Now, what they found is that this insulin resistance is much more in South Asians. And again, your good cholesterol is extremely low in South Asians, and your triglycerides are extremely high. This combination I've seen in so many South Asians. I have one South Asian patient who is now in Dubai, who has got a triglyceride, which is normally supposed to be 150. This figure is 10,000. So his blood is like a creamy cheese sauce, naked blood. So I've seen patients with 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, all that. So this is another thing with the South Asians. Our women, when they get pregnant, they tend to become diabetic gestational diabetes, and they carry on becoming diabetic later on. Then you have the metabolic syndrome where you've got blood pressure, diabetes, cholesterol, and all those things around. Metabolic syndrome, 33% of South Asians have metabolic syndrome, and 17% of women, have, South Asian women have metabolic syndrome. So my point is that with all these things, and plus we got a lot of inflammation. For some reason, our so if you have a South Asian who is say 50 years old, has got no problems, no cholesterol, no blood pressure, no diabetes, nothing, but has a strong family history, hmm. get a calcium scan done. It'll save your life. So Akhil, you, you, you've taken patients through all of these statistics um, and they say to you, doctor, I just want to enjoy my life. If something happens, 
you you'll um, look after me uh, or I'll take take the medications. What do you say to that sort of um, thinking? You see, once a person owns up his responsibility, there are a lot of patients, whether they're South Asians or otherwise, look, doc, don't tell me not to stop smoking. I know what's going to happen to me. Leave me alone. I'm coming over here just to get my medicines filled. I can do two things. I can find another physician or help him as much as I can in the given circumstances. But I cannot, you cannot take a horse and tell him to drink. You can only take him up. So I cannot do this. But generally speaking, people listen, patients listen. If I, if I have the time, I don't have the time, but now with this telemedicine, I have more time. I talk to them, they try it out. Even when you're going vegan, don't, because we always say that vegan is not tasty. Well, I can make you a, a, a burger of portobello mushroom with spinach on it, with all the condiments and spices you desire, with a lettuce and onion. And I promise you that you will enjoy it and you will not go for a regular burger. So things are improving. My time, we didn't have those. Yeah. But now you are fantastic. I mean, this is a true story. If I've got just one moment, let me tell you this. On, on New Year's Eve, uh, three, four years back, I had two other couples who were going to spend the New Year's Eve with me. And next morning I said, I'm going to make you scrambled eggs. And they said, okay. So here I was, I got hot tofu. And hot tofu, I scrambled, I mean, I scrambled it and then put all the cilantro and the tomatoes and the onions and the garlic and the whole nine yards. And I presented it to them. I kid you not, they took this and said, wow, that's the best scrambled egg you, we have ever eaten. And then I said, I let the cat out. I said, it's not eggs, it's tofu. And then one guy had the audacity to say, oh, now it's not that tasty. <laughs> so you see the point, we can do things and we can change, but yes, those people are playing Russian roulette. If yeah. they are saying that what is going to happen to me, uh, medical science will take care of it. That's what I thought. Yes, medical science is taking care of me, but I wish I'd never had this. Because try to undergo and get your heart stopped or try to get your breastbone cut. I don't and, want people to undergo that. And you've, you've been uh, plant-based for, for a while now. What are your health markers like? Are they all green? Superb. Amazing. Superb. I, make, I make a lot of cholesterol. So it is there. But here is my theory on this. If this is not uh, a proven theory, but this is my own theory. That if you eat the right foods, you're going to get the nitrates, which turn into nitric oxide. And this nitric oxide keeps your endothelial cells on your blood vessels, your arteries and veins, which are 50,000 miles running in your body. So if you're the endothelial cells, it keeps them healthy. So what happens if your endothelial cells, because of the nitric oxide is healthy, now you have the coronary arteries or other arteries, your penile arteries, brain arteries everywhere. They can nicely dilate it, free flow of blood and the walls are perfect, correct? Now, if you take that food, so you're destroying your endothelium. 
and therefore now the cholesterol forms plaques because this nitric oxide is not being produced. So it forms plaques. But even if my cholesterol is high and my food is proper, my nitric oxide is being produced. So that cholesterol may not have a chance to form a plaque. Right. So my cholesterol, if you have under 150 cholesterol total and under 70, you can never get a heart attack. No, it's, it's fantastic. Akhil, thank you so much for writing the book because I think that's an important contribution to the world and, and now talking and carrying the message forward. Um, it's been fabulous to talk with you. Now, if you're in Melbourne at any point, it'd be lovely to have a live discussion. And likewise, if I'm uh, your way, my brother is in the US, so I might get there. Uh, we might have a live discussion and, and uh, I'd love to have you back with a live audience at some point. Fantastic. Take care, Terence. Lovely meeting you. 